Aren't you glad you came here this morning? Man, oh man. We don't mess around at Christmas here at Genesis. What an amazing moment that was to be reminded of our Emmanuel who has come to be with us. Well, Merry Christmas to all of you. Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here at Genesis. And if I haven't met you before, consider this a personal greeting to you. And hopefully I can meet you before you leave today. We are so glad you're here. And please, if you would, just do as DJ had asked. Fill out that Connect card, drop it off at the Welcome Center, and leave with some M&Ms and coffee. You will not regret that. I never have regret leaving somewhere with M&Ms before. So uh, just great to have you with us this morning. Well, almost two years ago, uh, I made the decision and have stuck with it to start going to the gym consistently. And uh, by the time I was in my early 40s, I realized I was going to need to start taking care of my body better. Maybe some of you who are of my age or older, you understand what I'm talking about, right? And because not only right now, like I start to aches and pains and stuff like that, but I, I'm considering my future. And I'm like, man, I just want to be in the best shape I can be. So I started going to the gym four days, five days, sometimes a week. And when I got started, I, I wanted to lose some weight and I wanted to increase my muscle mass and get some strength back. And the best way to do that, I learned, was through strength training lifting weights, if you will. So the problem was, though, I didn't really know where to start, which is, I think a lot of us, when we go to the gym, we're just really not sure what to do, right? But I was really, I was like, I don't really know where to start. I was really inconsistent in doing this over the years. It had been a while since I had lifted anything, even especially exercise, and I wasn't sure what I was even capable of. So I went to the, the gym and I, and I headed to the dumbbell rack because I knew something about dumbbells. And I, I saw this rack and it was as long as this wall or as long as this room, it felt like. And there were all these options for different weights. And I had no idea where to start. And so I looked, there was a guy next to me and he was about my size. He looked relatively around my age. And so I just read the number on his dumbbell and I was like, I'll just start there. And so I walked over to the dumbbell rack and I barely lifted them off. And I put them back down and I thought, there's no way. There's no way I'm going to lift these. So I went down five pounds. You know, I was like, well, maybe, I'll, and I lift, there's no way. There is no way I'm going to lift it. And I went down another five pounds and another five pounds and another. And then I got to the 10 pounders and I was like, I can do this. I can do this. Okay. So, you know, and I, I just realized, man, I, I, I was a few months in, I was starting to gain some strength and I would, but I would still go to station to station and I would try what I thought I could lift. And within a rep, maybe two, I would immediately stop, but I would drop the weight down because I realized this is way too heavy for me to be doing. And, and I'll be honest, I felt a little foolish. You know, I was a little embarrassed. I was so much weaker than I had thought I was. Now, as time went by, I started to strengthen. And little by little, I was able to add some more weight and be able to lift some more. And I was reflecting on some of those early days of trying to get started and working out. And I realized that the key to getting strong physically is counterintuitive to what we often think. I was under the impression that the key for me to get strong was to figure out how strong am I? But actually, what I found out is that the first step to actually getting strong is realizing how weak you really are. If you want to get physically strong, you have to first admit you are weaker than you imagine. Like I did, most people, when they walk into a gym, 
They overestimate their strength when they walk up to a dumbbell rack. Men, we're the worst culprits of this, right? We think back to the days when we played football and we were 16 and we were throwing weights around like they were nothing. And we walk into the gym when we're 44 and we're like, we can still do that. And by the end of the day, we're lifting 10 pound weights because we overestimate our own strength. And the only way that you can really get physically strong is to first admit how weak you really are. And then I realized, you know, this principle, it doesn't just hold true for our physical lives, but it actually holds true for our spiritual lives as well. So if you want to, uh, and we're going to talk about that today. So if you want to, you can download the YouVersion Bible app. It's really a great app. It's free. We use it. You can follow along with my message as we go through everything this morning. Just go to more and events. You'll see Genesis Church is an option for a live event. And if you're, you have your paper Bible with you and you want to read along, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. Otherwise, all, everything's going to be on the screen too. So you can follow along that way as well. Now, interestingly, the very first Christmas actually occurred in the midst of a a show of strength and power. At the time, the Roman Empire had been in power in Jerusalem and Judea for about 65 years prior to the first Christmas. They were a true world power, and they were in control of most of the known world at the time of Jesus' birth. So because of its ever-expanding empire, because of this ever-expanding empire, it was customary for the Romans to account for the size of their strength in the world. In particular, they wanted to know precisely how many people were actually part of their empire so that they could tax people appropriately. The Caesar wanted to make sure, who are my subjects, how many of them are there, because I want as much money as I can possibly get and build this empire to be stronger and stronger. Now, it doesn't, make, it doesn't seem like a big deal to us to take it like a census, right? Like when we do a census, when we account for people, it's really easy. We just push a button, we fill out a piece of paper, and we send it in. But in order for it to happen, in the first century, the entire Roman Empire would be cast into a frenzy as people moved from one place to another to account for the census. In order for the census to be accounted properly, you would have to travel back to your hometown and register in your hometown to let the Caesar know that you were still a part of the Roman Empire. I'm from the Twin Cities in Minnesota. That's thousands of miles from here. There was no Uber in the first century. There was no, you know, airplanes, nothing. There were just donkeys and dirt roads, okay? That's a long distance to travel. Now, most people didn't live thousands of miles from their hometown, but you can imagine people scattering throughout the Roman Empire, going back to their hometowns to register for this census. It was an act of strength by the Caesar to ensure his empire will continue to be seen as powerful in the world. And as this global event is happening, the author of the book of Luke, Luke himself, he zooms in on one particular couple. Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 1. At that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee, and he took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who is now expecting a child. 
Now notice the circumstances here. Here you have the most powerful person in the world requiring a young, poor couple to travel a distance of about 90 miles to simply let the Caesar know they exist and can be taxed. That 90 miles likely took Mary and Joseph about a week to travel one way. A week walking and riding on dusty roads while Mary was in her final days of pregnancy. I remember the final days of my wife's pregnancy. (laughs) And if I had asked her to walk or ride a donkey 90 miles, I would never have met my children. (laughs) And I certainly would not be here right now. I mean, this is a tall order for this young couple. Mary's a teenager. Joseph's barely out of his teenage years, likely. And yet they do it because they have to. They had no choice. They go to Bethlehem, and it is there that the very first Christmas comes to pass. Verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. Now, it's likely that by the time Mary and Joseph got to Bethlehem, the city was filled with other travelers who were doing the same thing Mary and Joseph were. They were going back to that sort of home base where their family resided from to register for the census. And so by the time Mary and Joseph get there, there's nowhere to stay. It's like New Year's Eve in Las Vegas. Good luck finding a room, right? You just, it's not available. And so they end up in some stable, maybe a cave of some sort where she can lay down, she can give birth to this, this baby surrounded by the stench and smell of animals and manure. And it's in that space that the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the Word, God himself breathes his first breath. And if that weren't enough, Jesus' very first guests wouldn't be anything to write home about either. Verse 8, that night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David, and you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Now, I've never spent any time with a shepherd. I've never really been around sheep. But I would often go to my uncle's dairy farm on Christmas Day when I was growing up in central Minnesota. And then going there was always very humbling. You know, we we grew up in the city, in the Twin Cities, and so we had all sort of the luxuries of life, and we would go to this dairy farm. It was very rustic, very rural. But the thing that was most humbling is I realized there are no days off for a dairy farmer. It does not matter what day it is. The cows have to be milked. You can't just leave them alone. It it could be a beautiful day in May. It could be a sub-zero day in December. It doesn't matter if it's Tuesday or if it's Christmas Day. The cows got to get milked. The work needs to be done. And the same would have been true of these shepherds. There were no days off for a shepherd. They lived with their flocks. The sheep were their life, and they were with them constantly. 
And it didn't matter if it was a beautiful warm day or if it was a freezing, windy, rainy, snowy day. This work still needed to be done. And so you can imagine the kind of state that these shepherds are in when they are invited to meet the Messiah of the world. They have spent weeks, possibly months, in the fields with their sheep, traveling from place to place, finding food for their sheep so that their flock will grow. They hadn't you know, likely bathed in weeks, maybe months. They smelled of the outdoors and feces. They were even seen as social outcasts. Nobody wanted to be around them. They didn't spend time in the normal confines of society. If Caesar Augustus were at the top of the social, political, and financial ladder, the shepherds were at the very, very bottom. And yet, it is they who stand before the Savior of the world. That they are the very first witnesses of God in human flesh. I really don't want you to miss this, okay? While the strongest and most powerful person in the world is forcing everyone to travel across the empire so that they can know how much money to tax people, a poor, young, teenage, pregnant couple give birth to the savior of the world in a barn surrounded by animals and smelly shepherds. These are the circumstances of the Christmas story. And I don't want you to miss it because it seems a little backward, does it not? I mean, to the naked eye, something is seriously wrong with this picture. Why would the Savior of the world, God himself, come in absolute weakness and powerlessness while the ruler of the known world flexes his muscles in a show of strength to those who he's in control of? Why the circumstance as it is? Well, for Luke, the writer of this story, how the Christmas story occurred is just as important as the details of what actually happened. In fact, the, cir- the circumstances surrounding the story of Christmas actually reveal something about who Jesus is and why he came to be with us in the first place. It is no coincidence That at the same point in history, when a global event, a massive census was being taken, the Savior of the world enters as a baby in obscurity. While the world was responding to one man's strength and power, the world was receiving God in his weakest form. The Apostle Paul would later write about this moment in history, and he would say in Philippians 2.7, Speaking of Jesus, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was being born, born as a human being. Remember, Jesus is fully God here. He was present at the creation of the universe. It was through him and is through him that all things are held together. It is through him that Caesar Augustus breathes his breath. And yet... The Savior of the world comes in his weakest form and begs the question, why? Why didn't Jesus come with all of the fanfare and strength that Caesar Augustus showed during the census? Why why not have Jesus crush Caesar by his heavenly power? I mean, he could have done that if he wanted to. What purpose 
Did it serve that Jesus would come as a crying, needy, dependent, pooping, weak baby? Well, for one, Jesus didn't come to condemn or belittle our weaknesses. Much like the world will do, he came to say, instead to share in them. Hebrews 4.15, the author says, this high priest, speaking of Jesus, this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. For he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. Do you hear that? That whatever weakness you have brought into this room, and I know that there are many because I brought many with him, that Jesus himself, the baby that came at Christmas, it says that he understands them. He gets you. He understands. He, he experienced it just like you have. He just didn't sin. And while all eyes are on the strength and the power of the kingdom of the world at the time in the first century, God's kingdom would break into earth through the weakness of a little child. And in doing so, God made an announcement. He announced that not only will he be with us in our weaknesses, but it is in our weakness that he will prove he is strongest. You know, in 2 Corinthians, the apostle Paul who wrote that same passage about Jesus giving up his divine privileges. He writes this letter to the church in Corinth. This is years after Jesus' birth and life and death and resurrection. And he writes this, and he writes about this chronic weakness he has in life, which is sort of reassuring because the Apostle Paul is like a giant in the New Testament. I mean, he is like the leader among leaders. And yet in 2 Corinthians, he admits, I've got some weaknesses. And he talks about this chronic weakness that he has. It just keeps haunting him. And we aren't exactly sure what it is, but it's bad enough that Paul continuously asks God to take it from him. Have you ever done that? Like, God, will you just, will you just take this from me so I don't have to deal with it anymore? Like this sin, this weakness, this part of me that just is broken, will you just take it from me? This is the prayer that Paul gives. And maybe it was a, a physical weakness, maybe it was an emotional weakness, a simple weakness, we don't really know. But regardless, Paul is constantly haunted by its presence and he just keeps begging God, take it away from me. But I want you to notice what he writes in 2 Corinthians 12 because he comes to a conclusion about this chronic weakness in his life. And this is what he says. He says, each time that I begged the Lord to take it away, he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses, Paul says, so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Completely counterintuitive to the way that we understand life. Weakness is not something we chase after. We like to overestimate how strong we really are. Right? We walk up to the dumbbell rack and we think, yeah, I can lift that. And Paul says, it's not until you recognize how weak you truly are that God begins to strengthen you. Christmas reminds us that God 
didn't demand that you get it all together and strengthen yourself so God will somehow approve of you. That is not the story of Christmas. Christmas reminds us that God understands you. He understands where you are. He understands your weaknesses and and your brokenness. And instead of abandoning you and crossing his arms and forsaking you, he actually comes and he lives among you and he experiences it with you and he meets you right where you are. Christmas reminds us that in Jesus, we find strength when we finally admit we're weak. In the monologue that was actually written by my wife, Kristen, and given by the one and only Miles Gustafson, there's a, yeah, you can cheer for that. There's a line that really resonated with me as I read through it. I heard him, you know, give it, and, and Miles said these words. He said, meet us in our longing and complete us in our lack. Meet us in our longing and complete us in our lack. Christmas is the story of God meeting and completing us in our longing and in our lack. It's the story of a God who saw us in all our weakness and brokenness and met us there in order to strengthen and heal us. Jesus stepped down from heaven in complete weakness and complete vulnerability as a baby so that we would not be left alone in our own weakness. He came to give us a way to experience life to the fullest, a life free of sin and shame and death. He came to bring us hope beyond this life, a life that goes on forever and ever and ever. And he came to take even the weakest and most vulnerable parts of who we are and use them to usher the kingdom of God into this world. Some of you have limped in here this morning, crushed by the expectations of this world, crushed by the idea that somehow you have to pull yourself up every day to prove yourself strong when all you can think of is your weakness. And you're tired and you're exhausted and you are so desperate for something to strengthen you in the midst of your weakness. And so this morning, I invite you to place your trust and faith in the one who came in weakness in a manger and died in weakness on a cross. The one who came for you and is calling you to follow him and set you free. The one who is whispering to you the words of Matthew eleven twenty eight: Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy, carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Christmas is the story of God coming to human flesh in his weakest form that he might meet us in our weakness and strengthen our souls. Will you place your faith? Will you give your life to that this morning? Let's pray. God, I am humbled to stand before you this morning and think of the ways in which you have strengthened my soul even in the midst of my own weakness. 
I know, God, that there are so many in this room this morning who have limped in here. The last year has been exhausting. It's been trying. They're not sure where to turn. And this morning, God, I just pray that you would provide that glimmer of hope that they need. That You have not abandoned them. You have not left them, but you have met them in their longing and in their lack. That it is in their weakness that they become strongest when you, when you enter into their world, when they invite you into their lives, when their faith is placed into you, when they are weak, they experience strengthening from you. God, I pray this morning that you would meet them there. And if that's you, I just want to give you an opportunity to simply say yes to Jesus this morning hand your life over to him and to ask him to take residence in your life even into the weakest areas that you have that he might strengthen your soul and if that's you just pray these simple words with me if you will to just say God I come to you in weakness this morning and I ask that you would strengthen and heal me I believe that the Savior of this world, the Savior of my life, came in the person of Jesus in weakest form that he would meet me here. And I'm choosing to follow you for all the days of my life today. God, thank you for the gift of Christmas. Thank you for the gift of Jesus who did not abandon us, who did not leave us alone, but who came on Christmas to give us hope, to give us life, to give us strength. It's in his name we pray. Amen.